Hey guys, I'm uh, Colin Page, and I co-lead United, our uh, young adult ministry here. So I'm going to be reading out of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the, hand, uh, in the body by human hands, <clears throat> remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covens, covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in the flesh, uh, in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. This is God's word. Awesome. Well, thanks, Colin. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. Uh, so thankful that you are here with us this morning. If you're joining here live in the auditorium, I also want to say a special thank you to all of you who are joining in via live stream as well. We count it an honor and a privilege that we would find ourselves in your living rooms this morning. So that's really cool. Uh, if I could just address the audience here, if you don't mind live stream folks in the room, how many of you here are excited to be together for our 1115 service this morning? How many are you excited? You guys excited? Yeah, that was pretty good, but let's, I know you can do better. How many of you are excited to be together this morning? Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm really happy that all of you are excited because I am scared stiff. I am freaking out right now, okay? And you might be asking why, like literally I wore dark pants today because I knew I was going to pee my pants before I walked up on the stage, which is what happened, okay? So, and you might be asking me, okay, Seth, why are you freaking out so much right now? Why are you so nervous? Why are you so anxious? Why are you so scared? Well, uh, unless you've been maybe living under a rock or you can't see the screen behind me or you weren't here last week to know that we started a series on politics, you may not know the reason why I'm freaking out, but there you go. We are talking about politics. So welcome everyone this morning to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. You have a front row seat into a man standing on a stage that is literally going to collapse in on himself in front of your eyes. So that's going to be fun for all of us, right? 
Now, while I, I am, uh, I'm kidding a little bit there, uh, I have to be honest with all of you this morning, uh, and this is just me sharing my heart a little bit with you. Uh, there is a degree of, uh, maybe I could say, uneasiness that I feel as I think about the topic of our conversation in this series, Dangerous Politics. A little bit of an uneasiness because I got to tell you, I know from my experience that conversations about politics can go south pretty quick, right? That politics are dangerous. And my, my guess is that most of you who are here today, you probably share to one degree or another uh, that uneasiness with me because you know how dangerous a conversation about politics can be. You know that it's inappropriate to talk to Uncle Ted at the Thanksgiving dinner about politics because you know it's just going to end in disaster. And so obviously, it's probably pretty obvious to most of you that that is the reason why we named the series the way that we did. That's why we're calling this series Dangerous Politics because I think we all know intuitively something that politics has some serious potential for disaster and division. Uh, That's why I just absolutely love last week, if you were here, you saw this, uh, Pastor Tony debuted our series here, did a phenomenal job, such such a good thing that he did last week. But he gave us this like one statement that I think has been really helpful and uh, that helps to kind of typify or helps us understand why it is we get so knee shaky when it comes to the subject of politics. This is what I thought Tony said that was so good. He said that the reason why so many of us are nervous about politics in a conversation is we know intuitively, instinctively, that politics contains the dangerous potential to divide. Politics contains the dangerous potential to divide. Man, I think that you guys agree with me? Like, that is such a good statement. I don't think I could put that statement any better. Why? Because it's so simple and straightforward, but it's so profound and it so encapsulates what so many of us might feel. This is like the next closest thing to a perfect statement, which I am going to proceed now to attempt to amend (laughs) slightly. So I think the reason why, yes, I think it's true, politics contains the dangerous potential to divide, but I think we could probably say it this way too. The reason why so many of us hesitate to enter into the tumultuous reality of political conversations is because we know this too. We know from our experiences that politics contains the dangerous probability to divide. Uh, We've all had those experiences where we feel like if we endeavored to reach across the cubicle in our workplace and we deigned to enter into a political conversation with a person that doesn't necessarily agree with the things that we do, we know that there is the distinct probability that that thing is gonna go south really, really fast. And not only this, I think that we know that politics contains the dangerous probability to divide, not just ourselves internally as we try to think and work through the issues themselves and what, it, what we might think or believe is good, right, or true about a given issue and how we should position ourselves with it. I think we know that politics contains the dangerous probability to divide people to pit people in one group in hostility and animosity against the people who would affiliate with another group. And I think what's happened in our political climate here in 21st century America as we head into this election season, I think we have come to discover that many of us feel like we are being forced into an either or. That really the only options on the table are the Democratic ticket, or the Republican ticket. 
And because of the pressure and the confusion that comes with a political season, we feel like we are being forced into allegiances, into an either or, into one group or the next. Now, I I could probably say definitively that many of us have felt this deeply within ourselves as we've attempted to view and navigate the political climate that we are in right now in this election cycle. But here's what's fascinating to me. As I did some research and study and prep for this message today, I actually discovered that the feelings that we have about this political polarization that we're experiencing and the either or that we're being confronted with, those feelings that we have are not just our own misperceptions. Like it's not as though that we have these feelings about this political polarization that aren't really true in fact. Actually, recent studies and research, statistical analysis has shown that this is actually a true thing that's happening in our culture and in our society today. Uh, Take, for instance, the findings that were reflected in a recent article written in the magazine Psychology Today. I want to read this to you. I think it's fascinating. This article says that drawing from survey data spanning several decades, a recent study found that the feelings of those who affiliate as Democrat or Republican— toward members of the opposing party have become increasingly negative since the 1980s. You're like, no duh, right? (laughs) But again, they're saying here that it's become increasingly negative and that there's now certifiable data to back this reality up. It says, curiously, this affect polarization, the effects of the increased polarization in our culture wasn't so much related to ideology. Get this? Ideology is where one actually stands and lands on the political issues that are on the table in front of us. What we believe is right, wrong, good, or true about the thing in the issue in front of us. Curiously, this wasn't so much related to that ideology as it was to partisan identity. Partisan identity. A more recent study extended these findings by distinguishing between two separate aspects of political ideology. One aspect would be issues-based, which is defined by what one, again, actually believes about the issues that are at hand. Versus, now catch this, versus identity-based. In other words, where a person affiliates and how they define themselves by one's social identity and party affiliation. Feeling like they are connected and a part of a group of people, the in-crowd who has the right way of thinking. Check this out. By far the more potent predictor of social distance, which by the way, this was written pre-COVID, so now that means something totally different, doesn't it? But the social distance, the distance that group thinking, identity politics creates and the division and the distance that we're increasingly seeing in our culture, by far the more potent predictor of the social distance was identity-based ideology. How we identify ourselves as Democrats or liberals as opposed to Republicans or conservatives And check this out, not by where we actually stand on the issues themselves. For much of the voting public, political affiliation isn't so much about the issues as it is about being part of Team Red and Team Blue. This next sentence, you've heard this blasted on social media, these terms blasted on social media before, and you may have been offended to hear them live and in person with another individual. So when it becomes about us versus them, Liberals then become libtards. Conservatives become fascists, yet Hitler. And look at the conclusion, look at the conclusion. And the possibility of finding common ground 
flies out the window. The possibility of finding common ground, something that might reconcile us and unite us, flies out the window. Now listen, you guys. As all of us stare down the barrel of this latest milestone in the political division that we know is happening in our country, that is this next election cycle. I think what we all have to be asking and what we probably are at a deep level asking, and it's this question. When is it going to end? Have you ever asked that? I mean, when is this partisan ideology and the great division and the walls that we place between our political affiliations, when is the factionalism? When is the division? When's that stuff finally going to stop? When's it going to stop? And for those of us who find ourselves here or who are tuning in online, because we are connecting to a church, we have to extend these questions to the God that we're asking to answer these for us. We're asking God, when is it going to end? God, what is the perspective that I need to see what's actually going on versus what, I've being, what I'm being told in the media and other places? And furthermore, God, God, is there an antidote? Is there a response? Is there a way that we might be reconciled and somehow move closer to unity in our world? Now, let me just say to us all this morning, I do not believe for one second that God has left us without some clear-cut responses on this. He has not left us alone on these issues. As a matter of fact, we here at Grace, we believe strongly, probably about as strongly as you could, that the Bible is the very word of God. It is the very word of God. And so what that means is the Bible is God's message to us. It's God himself communicating his heart to us, his heart and his desire for us to come into a fully functioning and healthy relationship with him and a fully functioning, healthy relationship that works itself out in seeing what he would have to say about the way we ought to live our lives today and beyond. And here is what's fascinating. This same Bible that communicates God's heart for reconciliation with him and the life we ought to live, this same Bible also speaks powerfully to the possibility of reconciliation of the group kind of thinking that we buy into and we drift into in our culture, in our world today. I, I find this fascinating. Last week, Pastor Tony masterfully walked us through this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And in that passage, he shared with us afresh that the Apostle Paul speaks very definitively that in Christ, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because of the great love with which God loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, separated from God, that in Jesus Christ and his blood at the cross, that God has effected a vertical reconciliation, that human beings and God can come into a right relationship because Jesus died in our place at the cross. But what I find beautifully fascinating is that this reality of vertical reconciliation that we find in that text leads into Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, which we read a moment ago. And Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 shows us how the gospel of our vertical reconciliation with God is also, lead, or also leads us into a gospel of reconciliation and healing of human to human relationships. That Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 provides a resounding declaration considered a manifesto, if you will, of God's heart for healing the broken relationships that we experience with other human beings in our lives. 
And so what we're gonna do for the rest of our time together is we are going to go back to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We're gonna unpack it incrementally, kind of take it a little bit by chunks, verse by verse. And the way I want to kind of guide our conversation or the roadmap that I wanna offer to you is the same roadmap that Pastor Tony offered to us last week. He said that most of us, what we're looking for in a season like this, especially for those of us who follow Jesus, we're looking for two things, right? We're looking for perspective. In other words, how does God want us to view the things that are actually happening in our world today? But that we're looking for more than just like a theological voice from God that lives in the abstract. We're looking to actually see how what God says to us about how we should understand and handle and navigate through these big ticket issues, how that might actually guide us and steer us into some concrete actions and behaviors in that regard. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take the first part of our time together. We're gonna unpack the scripture for that perspective from God because the Bible is God's word to us. And then we'll finish up with a couple thoughts, suggestions on how we might apply those things in our lives today. So let's start here. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter two. Let's look at the first two verses, verses 11 through 12. So this is what the Apostle Paul, who writes this letter to a group of Christ followers in the ancient city of Ephesus, this is how he begins in this section. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Thanks for that addition, Paul. Uh, Remember that at that time, uh, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope, and you were without God in the world. All right, so again, as Paul begins to uh, pivot here in this verse from the vertical reconciliation of verses one through 10 to the possibility of horizontal reconciliation in these verses, Paul specifically draws his attention. He kind of gives us a little bit of a backstory about a particular people group, an ethnic people group that existed in the church or the group of Christ followers in this city of Ephesus. And he calls this group Gentiles, Gentiles. And so if you're unfamiliar a bit with this terminology, just think of it this way. All Gentiles means is not ethnically Jewish. A Gentile is someone who is not ethnically Jewish. And so you could see here, as Paul is introducing this thought, he is looking at these, this ethnic people group, and he is reminding them a little bit of their history prior to Jesus coming in the world, of their history prior to them coming to know God in relationship through the appearance of Jesus Christ. And so what I find is fascinating is that Paul, again, is reminding them of their state or their condition pre-Jesus. And he uses some specific words to depict this state and condition of this ethnic people group prior to Christ. He says that they are uncircumcised, which we're just gonna leave that one off to the side today. You're welcome, everybody. Maybe I should say it this way. Let's cut that one out of the conversation. This happened last service. I have never like had an active groan from an entire body of people after I've said something before. So this is kind of new to me. But so we'll just leave that one off to the side, okay? But he describes Gentiles. He describes them as separate, excluded. He describes them as foreigners. And he says they were without specifically two things. He says they're without the hope of a life with God and where that would lead. And they're also without God in the world which essentially means that they are without the knowledge of the one true God that they would need to even possibly come into a relationship with this one true God. Now, here's what I find very interesting. 
While Paul is addressing, in the original context, he's addressing this ethnic people group to remind them of something that occurred before Jesus. He is also, for later readers, ourselves included, he's giving us here a little bit of a window into the deep division, the deep wall building, the deep animosity and hostility that existed between this ethnic people group Gentiles and this other ethnic group that would have been represented in the church in Ephesus, ethnic Jews. So think about it. Paul is an ethnic Jew himself. So when he's reminding Gentiles of these things, there's this subtle window that we get into a little bit of a hostile situation that existed prior to Jesus and runs the risk of continuing to bring division to the church, Jew and Gentile, in Ephesus in Paul's day. Because think about it. If Paul calls the Gentiles, that group, separate, he also implies that the Jewish people prior to Jesus could have called themselves connected. They were connected with God in relationship. If Gentiles were formally excluded, what can that mean but that a Jewish person would have claimed prior to Jesus that they were included, that they were a part of the in-group, the in-crowd? If Gentiles are foreigners, on the one hand, that means that a Jewish person would have claimed that they were certifiable citizens of God's kingdom and his desires to work whatever he wanted to work in the world. And if Gentiles are without things like hope and without a knowledge of God, that means that on the other side of the aisle, as it were, this group of Jewish ethnic people would have claimed that they were with that hope, that they were connected to that hope and that they knew the one true God that the Gentiles formerly didn't. All right, now we we don't have time to go into today some of the, the history and the backstory as to how these two people groups got to be where they were in terms of the intense hostility and division that existed among them in the ancient Roman world. Well, rather than laboring over the details here of how this came about, let me just break it down for you. Here's what you need to know about these two groups. The divide that existed between these two groups of people would make our American political quarrels look something to the equivalent of my kids arguing about whether The Empire Strikes Back is a better movie than the original Star Wars, right? And hear what Paul is saying. It's clearly The Empire Strikes Back. That's the the better movie of the two. Now, listen, you cannot... You cannot get a more serious or intense divide between two groups of people than existed with Jew and Gentile. And you might be like, okay, I get what you're saying, and I think I know where you're going with this, Seth. But let me just ask, like, how bad? Like, how bad was the division and the animosity that existed between these two groups? Because I think we all know, like, Seth, you could be exaggerating things a little bit to make your point, Or like, how bad was it? Because we all know that uh, we're all sized up and apportioned into different groups in our lives. And some group animosity toward other groups is not as bad as others, right? It's kind of relative. So how bad are we really talking? All right, let me me see if I can uh, paint the picture for you in some groups that we know of today and then kind of rate the animosity and the hostility of the Jew and the Gentile in comparison with some of the things that we know today. So let me, let me introduce to you something that I would call the thermometer of hostility, the thermometer of hostility. So it's this idea that as the temperature rises, as the heat of hostility and division, as the increase of, of polarization occurs, the temperature's gonna go up a little bit, okay? So let's, let's plot a couple groups. 
on the screen. How about this one for, for starters? <laughs> Wendy's versus Chick-fil-A, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm a Wendy's guy. Said no one ever, <laughs> okay? But some, some of you might be like, I'm, I'm thoroughly Wendy's. I'm team Wendy's. Gosh, I feel like I just entered into a twilight conversation, like team whatever. Uh, anyway, so I'm team Wendy's. And others of you are like, no, I'm Chick-fil-A all the way. Now, by show of hands, yeah, somebody got a woo. I didn't get an amen about anything else, but I got a woo on Chick-fil-A. So for those of you who are here, and even, even if you're at home, do, this, this will be fun with your family. All right, so how many of you by show of hands are Chick-fil-A people? Yeah, most of you in this room, you can put your hands down. How many of you by show of hands, the rest of you are not Christians? <laughs> I love that, I love that. Well, we all know it's like Christian chicken, right? That's what, that's what Chick-fil-A is, right? <laughs> but even, <laughs> I love it. So, but even like, even if you're a Wendy's person, right? And it, or if you're a Chick-fil-A person, this one's pretty benign, right? We kind of got a low-grade fever going on. It's not that big of a deal, is it, on the thermometer of hostility? Because we find it easy to reach across the aisle. We find things that will transcend our differences, don't we? Like, we're all food people. We all like food, so we can shake hands. Well, how about this one? Yeah, okay, all right. The temperature increased. Yeah, we got an incremental increase here, cat versus dog. Some of you here today are like, yeah, I'm, I'm a diehard cat person. Said no one ever. No, I'm just kidding. I have two cats at home. I love them. Uh, so some of us are cat people. Some of us are ardent dog people. But again, even though there's a little bit of an amping up of the sense of the dist- that distance and the divide, or maybe we've uh, 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 put some bricks one on top of the other to build a little bit of a higher wall between us. I think we could say it's relatively benign, right? Because we could say, okay, we could find common ground on this one, can't we? And our common ground is that we're all animal lovers. Oh, how sweet. Okay, how about this one? Ooh. And notice, look what I did here. I mean, there's like a little, yeah, it's exponential increase, right? How about Ohio State versus Teton? And if you don't know what Teton is, it's an acronym that stands for that team up north. Why did I put that up there? Because as an Ohio State fan, I cannot utter in the sacred house of God the name of the state of that team up north, of course. But some of you, right, are diehard Ohio State fans. Some of you are diehard Ohio State fans. Some of you are diehard Teton fans. I feel sorry for you if you are. But the temperature just erupted a little bit. You're finding it increasingly difficult to reach across the aisle and shake hands. You're finding reconciliation increasingly complex. It's almost as if the hotter it gets, the less we have the ability within ourselves to reconcile. How about this one? Ooh, ooh. It's just got real, didn't it? And part of that's funny, right? But I'll be honest with you, part of it is real serious. How many people do you know? Or maybe you're one of them. You're like, they're taking away our freedoms by these stupid things. How ridiculous. And the person on the other side of the aisle is, how insensitive of you. We're trying to save lives here. The gap, the division, the wall, gets increasingly difficult for us within ourselves to reach across for reconciliation. How about this one? Yeah. And some of us, when these are now plotted on the screen, we can actually feel the heat in us, can't we? We feel the heat, like it's rising, the bitterness, the animosity, the frustration. Now, where do Jews and Gentiles, where does that Jew and Gentile division that Paul is talking about or alluding to or implying in Ephesians 2, where does that rate 
on the thermometer of hostility? I think it looks something like this. Yeah, that is the cheesiest picture you've ever seen, and that was intentional. Like, let me just tell you, the Jew and Gentile is like a nuclear explosion in comparison with all the rest of these things. All these things are relativized with the deep hatred and animosity that existed. You could not have a deeper divide or greater hurdles toward human reconciliation. If you think about, if you think that the political divisions in our country are bad, the Jew-Gentile divide was exponentially worse. Listen, In the 200, almost 50 years of our country's history, we have had exactly one civil war. In the 250 years, either side of Paul's writing the letter to the Ephesians, the Jews were in constant armed conflict and revolt against Gentile rulers and people groups. If ever there was an insurmountable divide constructed by competing ideologies that resulted in ferocious hatred of one group to another, this was the one. Which makes what Paul says in verse 13 so shockingly profound and powerful. Paul begins and he says, but now, Meaning formerly you Gentiles experienced this deep and bitter animosity and hatred. But something has happened in the world that has altogether changed the trajectory of your relationship to that other group. Something in the course of human history has entered on the scene that has made all the difference. That there's now a hinge or a pivot point of human history that has been demarcated on the map, on the chronology of human experience and history that has altogether changed the ballgame. He says, but now things are changed. He says, in Christ Jesus, and what he means here is, if you are connected to Christ by faith and you are in him, in a united relationship with him, in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, you who once were far away, the Gentile people group, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul says that because of the cross here, he says that those who are far away, these Gentiles, are brought near and brought near to stand side by side with those they formerly hated with an exceeding vitriol. That somehow, some way, the cross of Jesus Christ has not only brought the possibility of reconciling human beings to God, but somehow the cross of Jesus Christ has made it possible for those who were once far away and disconnected to march right in to the presence of God and stand side by side with their Jewish ethnic counterparts in worship and declaration and relationship and praise of that one true God. And this didn't just happen with any two groups of people. It's these two groups of people. And Paul is going to say that these two groups of people have been made one. They've been unified They've now been connected underneath the lordship to where the Jesus's agendas and his kingship in the world becomes the beating heart of their relationship with him and their relationship with each other. And so if you're like me, when I read this, I'm like, wow, that's profound. That's huge. I start to ask the question, how exactly did that happen? Like, what was it? about the cross of Christ in particular, because that's what Paul references. He said, it's by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is a reference to Jesus's crucifixion. How did the crucifixion affect this kind of human-to-human reconciliation? How did it do that? 
I think Paul gives that to us in the next several verses. Paul says, for Christ, he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Christ's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, no longer identified by the old ethnic markers, no longer this group or that, one new humanity at the cross. Thus, Jesus made peace. And in one body, notice the unity, the oneness to reconcile both of them, these groups, to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles. And he preached peace to those who were formerly near, Jews. Now, I think when Paul is responding to the question that we might ask as to how the cross of Jesus Christ affected this kind of radical condition and change in human history, this radically new situation, I think he gives us a clue to a response to that question by the repetition that appears of one word in these five verses. Notice the word peace that appears here four times in this small chunk of text, the word peace. Now for you and me, when we see the word peace, for you and me, we probably think what immediately comes to mind is an absence of something. And so what I mean by that is an absence of conflict or an absence of warfare, or an absence of like armed hostility, right? So when we think about a peace treaty, it usually is from two nations who are at war who have just decided, they, their opinions of each other might not have changed, but they've just decided to stop armed conflict. Now, while the Bible's definition of peace is you kind of look across the scriptures and get a better understanding of what peace would have meant for the biblical authors, The Bible's understanding of peace does include an absence of war. It definitely includes that, but it's actually so much more than that. Uh, In the Bible, the word peace refers less to the absence of something as much as it is the presence of something. Less the absence of something and more the presence of something. And so if we were to look at uh, peace language in the Bible, you'd actually discover that there are two primary words. There are others that are connected, but these two are primary. And it is the Old Testament Hebrew word shalom, which many of you may have heard already in your life. And the New Testament word, which appears here in Ephesians 2 for peace, is irene, irene. And so irene like leans pretty heavily on like a metaphor or a word picture or a thread that runs throughout the entire Old Testament. And so when you think about this idea of shalom, shalom most strictly means, or irene, as it picks it up in the New Testament, this word means wholeness, okay? This word means wholeness or completeness. Uh, Often in translations, English translations of the Bible, if you go to the Old Testament where the word shalom appears, you may also get it translated as the word perfection or something that's perfect. And again, it has this idea, it's almost a word picture. You're supposed to get the sense when you, talk, when you start talking about shalom, you're supposed to get the sense that there is an artist or a designer or a craftsman who desires to make some kind of object or thing. And this artist or craft, craftsman knows that he needs a whole bunch of composite parts to be properly integrated into the thing in order for that whole thing to do what his original designs for it were to do. And so shalom kind of means this. It means all components of a thing set in proper working order. Every contributing part of a thing properly integrated so that the whole 
functions as the whole was always intended to function. All right, so here's, here's what I want to do. Let me just give you a little, little illustration as to what uh, this might look like, okay? The idea of shalom. Um, and the illustration is associated with the most greatest shalom-like experience that you will ever get in your life, which is a Snickers bar. Uh, no disrespect to those who have a peanut allergy in the room, but you are missing out. I'm so sorry. But Snickers bar, right? This guy right here is the closest thing to shalom you will ever get on the face of the planet. Uh, not my relationship with my wife, not my relationship with my kids or my guitars, but this delicious. Mmm. Shalom Snickers bar. Mmm. Gooey caramel. Mmm. Whoever designed this thing, they designed it for a specific purpose. They designed it so that when I took too big a bite, you got to give me a second, there's a lot of caramel in there. Whoever designed this man, when they did it, they designed it so that I could experience the goodness and that I would taste and see that the Snickers is good and that as it goes down my esophageal cavity into my intestines, I am satisfied like nothing else could. So let's think about Snickers in terms of shalom, all right? So whoever designed this designed me to have that kind of experience, right? That was its function and its purpose. Now, if you think about a Snickers, a Snickers has four key ingredients, doesn't it? You have to have these four ingredients in order to get the shalom Snickers experience, don't you? You have to have chocolate, you have to have peanuts, you have to have caramel, and you have to have the fluffy nougat. Okay, those four have to be there in order for Snickers to be what it is. If you remove any of those, you no longer have shalom. Likewise, you not only need the presence of certain ingredients, you also need those ingredients to be properly arranged together to get the shalom Snickers experience. You also need a proper proportion of each ingredient to another to get that. This is why if you were to remove the chocolate shell, the chocolate entirely from a Snickers bar, you'd get this. This is like an abysmal excuse for a candy bar, isn't it? Look at it. It looks like a, looks like a turd. I'm not going to lie. Like, that's awful. If you remove something, a key ingredient, you've lost shalom. It might be something, but it's no longer a shalom Snickers. Likewise, if you were to take the chocolate, excuse me, if you were to take the chocolate on the outside and you'd put that inside the bar, and then if you were to take the fluffy nougat and you were to coat the bar with it, you again, you might have something, but you don't have a Snickers. You don't have a Snickers. Likewise, if you were to just coat half the bar with the caramel inside, bye-bye shalom. You've lost shalom. It is only when all those ingredients are holistically brought together that I truly have what I long for and what the designer made it to do. A complete shalomed Snickers experience that is what the bar was originally made for. All right, so what I want us to do, apply that, if you can, <laughs> apply that, now listen to me, to the way that God made the world. That God, according to what Genesis chapters one and two revealed to us, that God masterfully, beautifully, powerfully brought all the components of the universe together in a shrewd act of wisdom, knowing where every single part belongs, every composite part being carefully, preciously, tenderly situated within the whole 
so that the whole of it might resound to his glory and his goodness. So that creation itself, as the Bible will say, would be a reflection that speaks of the beauty of the design of the creator. If you think about it, this world is so finely tuned that even if the earth itself were millimeters or micro whatever, I'm not a scientist, off its axis, off its axis, we wouldn't be here. And so God created this world for a shalom. He created this world in shalom. And when he made human beings, God's intent and his design was to carefully situate them in certain ways that would reflect his glory and character into that shalomed world. And when God made human beings, God made us such that in order to achieve the shalom that he desires for us, he designed us for authentic and vibrant loving relationship with one another. That human beings were not designed to empower plays of coercive force to stomp on each other. That we were designed to collaborate with one another, to walk arm in arm as we together reflected the goodness of God. And as we kind of responded to the commission that God had given us to expand God's shalom influence throughout the rest of the world. And this means that when sin entered the world, we read that in Genesis chapter three, when sin entered the world, sin did not merely interrupt or break or fracture the relationship that we individually were designed to have with God. Sin ruptured shalom and it ruptured and fragmented us and it introduced hostility and animosity in our relationships with one another. Sin built walls between us. Sin introduced factions in us. Sin ruptured shalom. It pulled us apart. It pulled apart what God had intended to exist in a well-ordered, loving, fully functional whole. So now, rather than accepting each other, rather than human beings loving one another with all integrity, rather than human beings pursuing the well-being of others, even if it costed them greatly, sin drove a wedge of hostility and selfishness and arrogance and pride in between us. And the product of all of that from the inception of sin in the world traces itself all the way down to where you and I are at today. We feel the weight and the effects of this hostility of sin toward one another in the myriad of, of conflicts and hostility that we experience in our relationships with other people every single day. Guys, in light of that reality, and in light of the weight and the pressure that we carry, in light of the brokenness and the distance that we have from one another, I want us to look at amazement again at what Paul says Jesus did in Ephesians 2. Jesus, Paul says, On the cross, the blood of Christ poured out. He bore on his back, on his shoulders, the great burden of the broken shalom that was our responsibility to carry. Jesus bore our sin. He bore our strife. He bore our animosity. He bore all of our hatred on his back on the cross. I mean, guys, what is the crucifixion? But a vivid symbol. Jesus was beaten at the hands of men. Jesus was whipped, lashed on his back. 
Jesus was, was, had a crown of thorns placed on his head. The nails in his feet, the nails in his hands, what is that but a vivid symbol of the animosity and hatred, the sin-producing hatred of human beings toward other human beings. And Paul says that Jesus took that on his back. He lured sin out of hiding all the animosity and the disgusting, grotesque things that it produces, he endured it. And Paul says, in that moment, the blood of Jesus Christ, he put the hostility to death. He crucified it right there on the cross, which leaves you and me the possibility of seeing that there is a hope to be reconciled to our fellow man, to our siblings, to other human beings. There is a hope. Paul says he put this hostility to death. He eradicated it at the cross. The hostility, the distance, the wall that stood between us. Paul has already said in verse 14, in kind of casting this reality in a different way, he said that Jesus, in reconciling Jew and Gentile, has destroyed the barrier. He calls this barrier the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I love this. Scholars are nearly unanimous that this phrase, the dividing wall of hostility, actually referred to a physical, like a literal five and a half foot high wall that was put around the Jewish temple that was expressly designed to keep Gentiles out and away from the presence of God. Away and not in relationship, without hope and without God in the world. This artist's rendering kind of shows you what this probably looked like in Paul's day. We have the temple building in the court of women, which is where Jewish people were allowed. And they believed that in the temple building, the very presence of God was, if you wanted to have a relationship with God, you had to connect with him here. And notice the fence, the five and a half foot high wall that would keep Gentiles away from relationship with God. This was a fence that literally, it had inscriptions on it that said, if a Gentile were to scale this wall, that they would do so under penalty of death. Man, you gotta get this. What Paul says here is that Jesus has put to death the enmity. He has torn down the wall that kept us from God and that keeps us from living a shalom kind of life with one another. Paul says, Jesus put enmity to death. He ripped down all the walls of division that exist between us. And Paul says in this passage that he constitutes followers of Jesus under one Lord, one King Jesus. He constitutes us as a brand new version of being human, a brand new creation, no longer characterized by our ethnicity or whatever other group affiliations or distinctions we might have, but now characterized exclusively by our affiliation, our allegiance, and our connection to Jesus, the Lord who died for us. This is nothing short of Jesus making a way to reintroduce God's shalom into the world through his unified followers. And so fundamentally, I think Paul will say here, what he says here is that this means that if a person has placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their savior and Lord, that that person, if they call themselves a Christ follower, they are boldly asserting something. They are boldly asserting that group affiliations, that identity politics, that all the factionalism are no longer the defining factor in their lives. No longer the defining factor in their lives. So things like factionalism, things like us versus them mentality, 
Things like my exalted social or political or economic status over yours. All the endless ways that we in our sinful brokenness seek to cut up and divide humanity and push us into one competing group over another. Paul says, none of that has any place in Jesus's kingdom. None of that has any place in Jesus's kingdom. Let me say it this way. For followers of Jesus, this means that whatever identity distinctions that we formerly held, that may still exist. We don't all talk the same. We don't all walk the same. We're not all shaped the same. We don't all look the same, but those are now secondary. Whatever identity distinctions we formerly held are now secondary to the primary affiliation of the follower of Jesus. And that is this, allegiance to King Jesus, the Lord, who has rescued us out of darkness, brought us near to God in relationship and has set us up side by side as a new humanity with other followers of Jesus to live out and extend shalom in the world to those who need it. So what is the answer to the question of how we might heal the divide that exists, not just in our country, but in humanity as a whole? And the answer is not a politician. It's not a political party. It's not a platform. It's not a political action committee. Guys, just please hear me if you hear nothing else. The answer is Jesus Christ, the King. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Paul says that Jesus is our peace. He doesn't just come to sprinkle a bunch of peace on us. Jesus is our shalom. And so if I'm even remotely close to what Paul is giving us here in this passage. What does that renewed perspective mean for the way we would think about what we do and how we operate in our lives today? Let me just offer you three things, hopefully very quickly, and then we'll be done. Guidance. I would say this, the first thing I would suggest to you, there are a myriad of ways that you can apply this, but I would suggest to you that maybe it's as simple as hearing that you need to embrace hope. And not the hope that is offered to us by politicians who claim they can unify us if we elect them into office. That has never been true. It will not be true in this election. It will never be true. The hope that we are to embrace is the hope of being reconstituted the way God designed us to be, to be a new humanity. Embrace the hope that connect, being connected to Christ brings. Because hope does not rest in human institutions and the dividing walls that come with them. So what would it look like to embrace hope? Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus, embracing hope looks like hearing what Paul says here and knowing that there are absolutely no walls, there's absolutely no gap, no hostility, and no division that could ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So if you're not a Christ follower, and you've hesitated to come and put your faith in Christ and follow him in obedience. If you've hesitated because maybe you've had a negative church experience where you felt like Jesus' followers or those who claim to be his followers were just building up walls to exclude you. Like you had to do something before you could scale the wall to come and be a part of Team Jesus. Let me just tell you, if that's been your experience, I'm so sorry about that. I'm so sorry. I'm grieved to hear those kinds of things. 
but rather than go on your experience, let's go on what Paul says, what God says through Paul in his word. The walls come down. The doors have been flung wide open for you. God has invited you through Christ, through the blood of Jesus to come into his presence, to be restored in a vertical relationship with him and have the possibility of joining the new humanity and linking arm in arm in loving relationships with others. If you are not a follower of Jesus, this does not require anything of you apart from your full trust that Jesus has done it and Jesus is sufficient. What Jesus asks of us is faith in his work to be connected with God and to be transformed into something that brings shalom to the world and those around them. And I would say, if you're a follower of Jesus, embracing hope looks like reminding ourselves that hope is not just something that we tapped into when we came to Christ. Hope is continually putting Jesus in front of us every single day, reminding us that again, it's not a politician. It's not an action committee. None of that is going to provide the solution for what ails us and this world. As a follower of Jesus, we have new commitments. We have a new priority. We have a new allegiance. Man, I know that some of us Christ followers, we are carrying the unnecessary anxiety, the weight and the burden of thinking about what's gonna happen if the person that we vote for doesn't win. Let me just tell you, embrace hope. Remind yourself of who is truly in charge. Remind yourself that he has everything under control and he wants to guide you and lead you into being his ambassador of shalom to others. And I would say the second thing, embrace hope, but I would also say pursue the peace of Christ. And what I mean by this is actually two things, that we are to convey the hope of this gospel of reconciliation with God and others to those who need it. But maybe more importantly, or the stress is this way, convey and live it out. Live the gospel Live being the new humanity out as you show up in the lives of hurting people, as you show up through love and service to other people. You see, the example of Jesus, our King, is that when he came, right, he brought peace and he did so by loving the unlovely, the hopeless and the hurting. He loved and he served all of us to the greatest extent. So this means that peace is not merely talking a good game on Facebook. Peace means living it out. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peace talkers, not those who talk a good game, but the peacemakers. And so what if it looked like this? What if instead of putting the sign in your front yard as a peace talker, what if instead of having a sign in your hand in front of an abortion clinic picketing, What if instead of talking peace, we made peace? What would it look like for the new humanity, followers of Jesus, to bring hope to someone at Oasis of Hope? Oasis of Hope is a pregnancy crisis center here in Medina that helps moms who are contemplating abortion walk through that decision in light of the hope of Christ. Because what would that look like to be a peacemaker? to not rattle on and on about why this candidate sucks and this one's better, but actually go in and enter in the hardship and the difficulty of that person's situation and be an ambassador of shalom to somebody whose life depends on it. What would it look like to serve and save families, to provide orphan and foster care for people, for kids who need security and shelter, they need a meal, And they need to see the hope of Jesus in action 
What would that look like? So let's just not act. Let's just not talk with our vote and our signs. If you're a follower of Jesus, pursuing the peace of Christ looks like showing up and being ambassador of peace. Sorry. Finally, drop the adjectives. Uh, This may sound a little funky uh, to some of you, but I think what can easily happen, especially for followers of Jesus, is we know that Jesus has broken down the wall that stands between us but we can easily drift into modes of thinking that polarize people back into former ethnic or whatever social or political identities. And it can be really easy for us to caricature and to stereotype other people who are not like us in the body of Christ. And uh, I think many times this is related to kind of the subconscious narrative that we have when we attach what I would consider is unhelpful adjectives in front of the word Christian. Unhelpful adjectives in front of the word Christian. So we can tend to easily drift back into thinking, well, that person is a democratic Christian or that person is a Republican Christian or that person is a conservative Christian. And this can even extend onto ethnic barriers that we experience, right? Like I'm a white Christian or I'm a Hispanic Christian or I'm a black Christian or even gender, right? I'm a feminist Christian or I'm a masculine Christian or whatever. Let me just tell you, that none of that has any place in Jesus's kingdom anymore. And I love what one of my professors in seminary said. I thought it was so good. He said, the minute as a Christ follower, we begin to add an adjective to following Jesus, you immediately run the risk of rebuilding the wall that Jesus himself tore down at the cross. And so my encouragement to you is, let's drop the adjectives. If you're a Christ follower, you are one new humanity pledging allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And is this King Jesus, who as the book of Revelation says, has purchased people by his blood from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation and reconciled them to God. Bottom line is Jesus is our peace. He has made a way for all of us to relate to God and to relate to one another in a shalom like way. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and we want to thank you for the work that you did on the cross, that your bloodshed was what we owed and that the results, the painful hostility, you took that on your back and you put it to death. Jesus, you tore down the dividing wall. And for this, we just declare, especially for those of us who are followers of you, we declare our gratitude and our celebration at your goodness. Thank you so much for what you did and how you still work in and through our lives by sending your Holy Spirit to us so that we could live as the new humanity, so that we could show up, so that we could be your ambassadors, so that we could embody shalom in our world today. Jesus, I don't know where every single person is at in this room, but I know we are all in need of your grace and your mercy. We are all in need of you speaking to us to lead us and to guide us in whatever specifics of decision-making we need to make as a result of hearing and understanding your perspective. So Jesus, help us. Whether we're not a follower of you and we need to get connected, lead us by your spirit to your hope, or whether we are following you and you're challenging us to show up in someone's situation rather than just punch in a chat on a ballot. Jesus, we love you. 
We're asking for your help by your spirit. Lead us on as only you can. And thank you for healing the division between you and us and between us and each other. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.